is Paul Aronowitz. I am a health sciences clinical professor of medicine at UC Davis School of Medicine, and I am here today to introduce you to a latest podcast in the AIM workshop series. These were workshops that were presented at the Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine meetings in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in April of 2019. And it was just a great meeting uh, with lots and lots of great places to learn uh, and to help us be better in medical education. And so today's podcast is using self-regulated learning theory to diagnose and remediate struggling learners. And I'm going to let Mary Andrews, uh, who's a physician uh, who practices at Uniform Health Services University, um, along with Bill Kelly, uh, describe to you what exactly self-regulated learning theory is, because it's not intuitive. And then we will um, kind of move on from there. Uh, hope you enjoy this podcast, the fourth in this series. Today, I'd like to welcome Bill Kelly uh, and Mary Andrews, who will be joining me on this podcast, which is the fourth in a series of AIM workshops from the Philadelphia meeting in April 2019. And this was uh, one of the highest rated workshops at the meeting, and it was called Using Self-Regulated Learning Theory to Diagnose and Remediate Struggling Learners. And I believe that I've attended a a workshop that was a similar vein a couple of years ago, and we've used this work in remediating a few of our students here at UC Davis. And I thought that this, not only because it was uh, well-attended and highly rated workshop, but also because I have personal experience using their techniques, that this would be helpful to AIM listeners. So I'm going to ask uh, first um, Mary Andrews uh, if you could introduce yourself a little bit about your background, uh, where you went to medical school, did your residency, and I guess because of the location from where uh, you are being interviewed, if you could also give your rank, uh, that would be kind of fun for our podcast listeners. Sure. Uh, Thanks, Paul, and thanks for the invitation. Um, So my name is Mary Andrews. I'm a general internist, and I'm associate clerkship director for medicine at the Uniformed Services University, America's Medical School, and I'm a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy. Um, I'm also recently selected as the program director for the General Internal Medicine Fellowship, which is a two-year faculty development fellowship um, here in uh, Washington, D.C., I went to Creighton University School of Medicine for my medical degree. I went to Notre Dame for undergrad. Um, I came here um, to what was then the National Naval Medical Center for uh, internship and residency, um, and I've been here since. Excellent. Uh, Well, congratulations on becoming the, the General Medicine Fellowship Program Director. That's exciting. Thank you. And Bill, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks again, uh, Paul. Um, I'm Bill Kelly, uh, Colonel retired, United States Army, just retired. I have, um, uh, I'm a professor of medicine here at USU. I'm an ongoing student of human behavior. Uh, Pulmonary is my practice, and clerkship director is uh, one of the main things I'm doing right now. I went to uh, Tufts University up in Boston and did uh, fellowship and residency um, at uh, Walter Reed Hospital. Okay, and was Rick Kopelman the program director when you were at Tufts? Uh, that might have been either before or after. 
after my time. I'm not sure. Okay. I think he's been program director there for about uh, somewhere over 40 years, but uh, <laughs> surprised that you missed him. Uh, okay. As a medical student, you try to make a low profile. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, well, I'm really, really excited to have you both here, and I really appreciate your taking the time. <clears throat> I know that our AIM uh, podcast listening audience will enjoy this, as well as uh, many medical educators beyond AIM. So, Mary, the title of your workshop isn't exactly self-explanatory. Um, do you, would you briefly explain what self-regulated learning theory is and how it's used to diagnose the problem and implement solutions? Sure. Um, so self-regulated learning is self-generated thoughts, feelings, and actions that are planned and adapted to attain personal goals. Uh, most uh, experts in this area will Think of self-regulated learning as a triphasic process composed of forethought, performance, and self-reflection phases that are centered around a particular task. Um, and the, each of these phases uh, has multiple sub-processes uh, within it. So in the forethought phase, you've got your strategic planning, your motivation. Uh, during the performance phase, you've got tasks like um, metacognitive monitoring and attention focusing. And then in the self-reflection phase, there's processes like self-judgment and self-reaction. And these processes and this framework is a way to understand why some people perform well and why some people uh, do not. And it's a framework you can use to try to identify where a poor performer is going wrong and, and then implement a strategy for remediation that targets the underlying problem of self-regulation that they can then apply to the task at hand and hopefully other tasks as well. Then um, I think we'll we'll get into this a little bit more in in some examples and such. Um, but Bill, as I mentioned earlier, uh, this was a very highly rated workshop at AIM, and uh, needless to say, uh, clerkship directors and program directors and others that were at the meeting they're 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 pretty picky uh, about quality uh, sessions. But why do you think this is? I mean, what fired up attendees' enthusiasm around this topic? Well, sure, Paul. I think the enthusiasm stems from really a desire to be uh, empowered. We all know that when our learners uh, do well, it feels great, and, and when our learners struggle, uh, we struggle uh, as well. And while most test takers do okay, even if you have a, a 10%, a 4% a failure rate, that's still uh, hundreds or thousands of people uh, in the country each year that are failing uh, high-stakes uh, exams. And this uh, causes a bunch of problems. It's uh, uh, principally emotionally demoralizing for the learner. It can interrupt their training. But for us as faculty, it kind of uh, creates an imperative for us to try to uh, help them and remediate them. Traditionally, we haven't had a lot of tools, and this this gives people a specific tool uh, that they can use. And I'll mention um, there's also a financial cost to the students. This is from a, another 2019 reference um, of uh, osteopathic medical schools that, that students were spending about $4,000 on test preparation in addition to the $4,000 for the test and travel to the test itself. So this is a big burden, and uh, we try to minimize uh, having to retake the exam and instill confidence before the exams. 
If I could also offer not only, you know, our faculty looking for something that, again, like Bill said, empowers them um, to help these learners, I think also the ubiquity of the problem, just the fact that there's not a program out there, not a, a clerkship or a residency program or a fellowship that hasn't encountered this. So everybody, you know, has, has encountered these learners, as I think, Paul, you mentioned also, um, and it can be very frustrating not to have, you know, any, you're looking for something new to offer them, uh, something that's not just more of the same, go do more practice questions. Um, go study harder because if that didn't work first time, telling them to go back and do more of it, it's frustrating for everybody, the teachers and, and the students. And um, Bill, you mentioned that uh, there was this sort of baseline percentage of failures on various standardized exams. Could you go over what those are for, say, step one, two, three, and um, I guess also the ABIM exam would uh, be handy to know as well? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the numbers get published uh, every year for at the student level for the NBME, say, uh, medicine shelf exam, it's about 5%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that's still almost 1,000 uh, medical students. USMLE step uh, 1 and uh, 2CK and 3, it ranges 2 to 4%. ABIM, if you're an internist getting certified the first time, the, most recently there was a 9% failure rate. If you're a nephrologist, they had a tough year. It was a 17% failure rate. And our surgical colleagues on knowledge exams uh, have similar or higher rates as well. Also at 17% as well for our surgical colleagues? For surgeons, you know, this last time around, they have a lower number of test takers, uh, but a higher it was a higher failure rate for the ABS certification exam at uh, 21%. Oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't actually realize that. That's impressive. Um, Mary, one thing I should have done at the outset was uh, I believe that there was was a third co-presenter at this workshop, and I don't want them to go uh, without getting some accolades as well. Um, can you tell me who that was and what institution uh, he or she is based at? Sure. Um, the third presenter we have on our is um, Kent Dizee, Colonel Kent Dizee, uh, United States Army. He is currently the director of GME for the Army. Um, works here in Falls, uh, Falls Church, Virginia, just outside D.C., and he was the originator of this, this method. His interest in um, the way learners approach practice questions, and he's the one who came up with this, the seven different subtypes of struggling learner, and together um, Bill and I and Kent mapped them uh, using the self-regulated learning theory as a framework to inform the remediation strategies that we, we give these learners. But yes, he, he developed it, and we have uh, we owe him great debt of gratitude for um, involving us in that project, this project, and uh, letting us take it and disseminate it widely. Oh, that's that's really good to know. I, I'm, uh, it's always good to give credit where some credit is due, for sure. Um, uh, and maybe this would be a good juncture, Bill, if you could uh, talk about what are some of the reasons a trainee may underperform on tasks, and I guess we'll come to those different subtypes um, in a few minutes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, most every training program does have uh, some struggling learners that need remediation. Uh, the ranges vary. And I think the first thing is to step back before entering into any one remediation plan to see if there are other often extracurricular issues going on. And uh, Lucy and Boot published uh, something referred to as the seven Ds, different things starting with D that can cause problems. The most common thing would be some distraction, family issues, financial concerns, but depression, 
Uh, drugs and alcohol uh, learning disabilities, even late in a training career, uh, can be undiagnosed. Uh, sleep deprivation and other uh, disorders and diseases, personality disorders, these are all the things that need to be addressed, not by you, the faculty member, but you want to get them plugged into the health resources that you have have any kind of medical conditions optimized, and then they come to you uh, for our remediation strategy. And, and do you guys have any sense of um, what percentage overall of students struggling or, or, or residents or fellows struggling with these exams are due to uh, some sort of learning disorder? But I think it's, I mean, it's worth thinking about, and if you have concerns that somebody has a learning disability that, you know, has gone undiagnosed or they've been able to compensate for up until now to refer them for, you know, the appropriate testing so that they can, uh, you know, make sure they're using every strategy that they can to, to, to overcome that. I, I mean, it's, it's a minority. I don't have a percentage for you. I don't know. If yeah, no, I, think, I think it's a minority uh, as well. But when you can pick up something like an attention deficit disorder and intervene, that's uh, very uh, gratifying. Um, medical school or a residency training fellowship is very challenging. It, you know, there's high rates of burnout and stress from that. And I think that repeated test failures can add to uh, stress and contribute to anxiety and depression. So there's kind of a feedback loop there. So it's a, it's a minority, but it's definitely there, and your remediation strategy is going to be ineffective if you don't address that first. Got it. Um, Mary, I'm going to throw at you a probably one of the most difficult questions I'm going to ask because I think it covers a lot, of, a lot of ground. But you briefly defined what self uh regulated learning theory was at the beginning. Um, so if you could just sort of summarize it, and in the context of script theory as well. Um, I, I'm unfamiliar with the term script theory. And then how would how you'd use these things to determine test-taking deficiencies, go, going after these seven Ds, as you guys put it. Yeah, this is the contents of our 90-minute workshop. <laughs> Five minutes or less. We can do it, Mary. Um, so um, the self-regulated learning theory, think of it, I would think of it as you know, this triphasic process um, composed of forethought, performance, and self-reflection centered around a particular task. You know, for, for our purposes, the task is answering a clinical vignette-style test question correctly. Um, and we identify several key sub-processes that we focus on evaluating when we meet with learners um, that are part of the self-regulated learning theory. So one of them is strategy, strategic planning, task strategies, how the learner is going to approach the question. And this is where script theory um, fits in. So we think that the optimal strategy for learners to use when they approach these questions is illness scripts. And so the illness scripts, or the, or the general idea of scripts or schema, is this interior knowledge structure um, that's useful for organizing uh, large amounts of material such that our, our trainees and we as practicing physicians need to uh, master. It's a way to give order to new information uh, by comparing um, the symptoms and signs that you know a trainee sees in front of them in clinic or on a test with a pre-existing set of illness scripts in their mind about what these different illnesses look like, the relationship between the symptoms and signs and the probability of different illnesses. And so on a, on a practice test or taking a practice question, um, this 
allows for the quick generation of hypotheses or script triggering. And so we, it's not the only way to arrive at the correct diagnosis, but for practice questions where they're supposed to be relatively straightforward or consistent classic illness scripts, um, we think this is the best strategy to use. And so one of the things that we emphasize is developing these, these uh, rich illness scripts um, with our learners. Um, Let's see. Does that answer? Yeah, and and, and how how do you um, develop those those scripts? Sure. So I think that you know, it's exposure is one of the and focusing on clinical presentation uh, when the learner is studying. So the more times they can see uh, COPD in the clinic or in practice questions or on online cases, New England Journal of Medicine cases, whatever it is. Um, the more times they see something, the, each time they see it, it's going to add something to their to their illness script. And so, um, one of the other you know, techniques that we use to apply this method of self-regulated learning to the problem of practice questions is this question review form. And this is a structured approach to practice questions that emphasizes the development of illness scripts and focuses the learner on identifying the most likely illness script as their first task when they approach the question. And so in doing this, you know, repeatedly, each each clinical vignette that they do is another opportunity to uh, enrich their own illness scripts, make sure they understand exactly why each feature of the vignette fits with that particular illness script or doesn't fit. And Paul, I think the, the, the power, the fun part of this uh, method, which I think Mary can elaborate on, is the this think aloud process where you have the student think aloud uh, and talk out loud as they go through clinical vignette questions. And that can be very illuminating and often identifies one of the struggling subtypes right there. And then if not, going through this form with them slows down time, lets them focus on each element of the, the question, uh, question answering process. And uh, sometimes a pattern will emerge where the deficit is, and then we can use the form going forward to uh, remediate that deficit. Got it. So that's sort of the answer to the second part of my question I'd ask. That's the way you would use it to determine which test-taking deficiency they have, is just by having them verbally go through the vignette, and then it's an opportunity for you to look inside their heads and see what the deficiency might be. Is that correct? Exactly. And then uh, after we do those sort of uninterrupted think-alouds a couple of times, we start to go through questions still thinking aloud, but using the question review form. And there are certain patterns that emerge there as well that can clue uh, the faculty, the teacher, into what, uh, what the learner's deficiency is and how to best help them. Um, we've been talking about the form, which um, you had sent me and was given out at your workshop. Will, would you guys be okay with me uploading that to the uh, discussion boards um, as well as a PDF, just a PDF, not your original slides as well? Because I think yes, absolutely. Some, of, some of the complexity of this topic is actually seeing it in front of you as well, I think. And your, your slides and that, that worksheet that you go through with the learners, I found incredibly helpful. That's great. Yes, please do. Um, I can also refer, you know, anyone who's listening to our um, 2018 academic medicine paper where we outline a little bit more of this uh, method and the seven 
struggling learner subtypes. And then um, the, Dr. Kelly um, has a YouTube channel, uh, WFK Films, where there are video examples of uh, actors portraying uh, struggling learners with each of these different um, deficiencies, again, to help faculty be able to recognize them and to see um, how they work through questions. Oh, that's, that's, that's great. I wasn't aware of those resources. <clears throat> I will definitely check those out myself as well. Um, in your slides, there is a lot of focus on the struggling learner subtypes. Um, can you, um, I guess, Mary, could you briefly outline what these are? someone who has just across the board 
poor medical knowledge fall in those seven? Is that sort of a cross between lack of script recognition, um, yeah. lack of That's a great question. specificity, and then also... I mean, because it's not really isolated medical knowledge deficit. It's just striking that that's not one of your seven. Yeah. That usually manifests as lack of script recognition. I mean, that's how we would probably classify that. So um, that's a learner who needs to focus on identifying the most likely illness given this set of clinical information. Um, and and it, may, it may be an organizational or application problem rather than a, just a broad knowledge problem. There's a lot of learners who look at these clinical vignette uh, style questions and start doing really maladaptive things, even if they have a good knowledge base. Um, you know, one of the things we tell learners not to do is to go right to the answer choices or to go right to the question and the answer choices. Um, it's it's uh, it's a crutch for learners who don't have good illness script recognition because they can use the answer choices to get an idea about what might be going on in the clinical stem. Um, so it's not it's not always a knowledge problem. Sometimes it's an application or strategy or organization problem. Interesting. I um, posted a podcast a couple of weeks ago. It was called Interview with Two Megans, and there were two of our medical students, fourth-year medical students named Megan, who both did particularly well on step one and step two. And both of them had different approaches to the, you know, whether, you know, one of them always reads the the first line of the question at the bottom of the, of the stem, and then the other one never does that and feels that it throws her off. So I guess it's somewhat of an individual style as well. Um, but it's interesting. We, Go ahead. I'm sorry, Paul. We, sometimes we say you can read maybe the stem of the question, maybe, but we really like people not to read the answer choices because that that's unrealistic. You want to approach it like a clinical, clinical situation. And also you can anchor or have bias once you see an answer and you can't unsee it. But there are differences in, in style. And I would say also that there's a big difference between how high-functioning, high-functioning test takers um, I mean, perform and, and the strategies that might work for them and the strategies that are going to be most effective for somebody who's not performing well. Um, and we haven't really looked at um, how this works in high performers. We just focused on those who have been struggling and, and uh, you know, whether or not it's a – uh, it's a, a question about diagnosis or a question about treatment. You know, you got to get to the diagnosis first. So we, we tell the learners just, you know, looking at the question or the answers, it's just going to slow you down. It doesn't change what you have to do um, in the beginning, which is sort the clinical information in terms of most likely illness script. Um, Maybe that's a great. Uh, that's, that's a great point on high performers. I mean, if it's not broken, don't try to fix it. We usually limit this technique and these resources uh, to struggling test takers. We don't think it's harmful to be reflective, but we haven't studied it in that population. Maybe that's the area of your next work, <laughs> learning, trying to figure out <laughs> what you can learn from these high performers and how they approach these questions. I think that would be fascinating. Love it. Um, so how does this nomenclature, the, you know, the struggling learner subtypes, um, help with figuring out individualized solutions to deficiencies that you guys have identified? Mary, why don't you take that? Sure, sure. Um, so in some cases it's using what we know about self-regulated learning and 
other fields um, and applying it to um, the medical education. So, for example, self-regulated learning has been used to describe differences between, you know, novice and expert athletes and things like free throw shooting and volleyball serving, like placing a serve. Um, and in some cases, um, it's, it's as simple as a cue card to remind them of, the, of their strategy. Um, and this has been shown to, you know, greatly improve performance and, and differentiate between high and low performers. And so one of the things that, you know, we we've operationalized that using the question review form. That's the cue card. The cues the learner into, um, hey, I need to focus on illness script. Um, I need to be thinking about how this question is going and how my confidence is as I am going through the question. And then when I'm done with the question, I need to uh, reflect, this is the self-reflection phase of the SRL process, on uh, what went well with this question, what I still need to learn, and then make my concrete targeted study plan um, that's not just read more um, to address what I've unearthed uh, in this particular question. Fascinating. Um, having used some of the this technique that you guys taught um, previously, I have to say it was it, it just sort of makes so much sense once you're sitting there doing it. Um, I think from a podcast standpoint, it's a little harder to follow, I think, without you know the worksheet in front of you. But that's why I'll post it uh, on the discussion board. Bill, are there any downsides in your experience to the approach you both have been talking about today? Uh, so far, the only downside is a good problem to have, and that's uh, demand for the remediation service. So once once we're able to help some students and word gets out, you know, the students, the, the dean's office, uh, faculty peers uh, continue to approach you uh, to do this. Uh, it is a hour-plus time commitment up front with the, with the learner uh, doing think-aloud questions, but after that, the learner takes a stack of question review forms and does it on their own. So the faculty burden is not significant, but you do get a, a request for a lot of learners, and that's why... Uh, through our workshops and through you, Paul, we're grateful for this opportunity. We're trying to disseminate uh, the tool, uh, kind of train the trainer, and we'll get um, even greater, uh, hopefully, impact on our learners. I I feel like this should be a workshop at every AIM meeting. I mean, I it's sort of <laughs> really it's 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 sort of a um, a workshop that I think every clerkship director, program director, fellowship director should attend because it's so helpful. Uh, Mary, any summary thoughts for us about your approach to using self-regulated learning theory to diagnose the problem and implement solutions? I would just um, encourage any faculty who are listening um, to to do a little bit more reading. Um, come to our workshop. I hope we'll be at AIM uh, uh, this next year. We did submit again. so. Um, you know, take a look at our, our article and look at the videos and, and, and give it a try. I do think it's been one of the most rewarding um, experiences for me doing this with learners because you really do have some really significant, uh, you notice really significant improvements and, and the learners are very, very grateful for it to have something new to try. Um, it's, let's see, yeah, it, it, it's, it's practical, it's doable. Um, the more you do it, I think the better you'll get at recognizing you know, these particular subtypes. Um, and, 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 yeah, again, the, our learners, we, I think we kind of we owe it to them to give them something, something new to try. Bill, any other thoughts? Uh, just to conclude, you know, again, it's a very feasible process. If you come to the workshop, you get to do it uh, on your peers. It's well-grounded in script theory. 
in educational theory, so it's got a good basis. It focuses on disease scripts, clinical scripts, so it should help your learner in the clinical setting and not just uh, when it comes to test day. It gives the learners a practical thing to do. Here's a worksheet. Uh, and it gives faculty uh, a practical uh, tool to use. So I, uh, we really enjoy doing it. Uh, and we're always looking for feedback and opportunities for collaboration. So I hope your listeners will, uh, will be in touch. Okay. Well, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you two taking time out of your very, very busy schedules to talk with me today. But before the we end this podcast, I, I do have a very important question for each of you, and that is uh, assuming that your workshop gets accepted to Orlando in the spring at AIM, uh, I would like to know which Disney character each of you uh, would hope to meet while in Orlando. Mary? <laughs> oh, man. And maybe Dr. Guys. Andrews likes Snow White. She's so good. She does a great job, so it's kind of typecasting. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I hear they have that new Star Wars place. I'd probably check that out. But we'll just happy to we'll be happy to be in town. All right. Well, thank you both so much, and thank you to your uh, public affairs officer there, Sarah Marshall, for helping us to set up this interview. And I will uh, see you either at Aptum or AIM in the coming months. Thank you, too. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Paul. That was fun. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.